Good Thursday morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. There are many ways that you can listen in, either over the air, online at kfuo.org, or using your favorite podcasting app. However you connect, I'm glad you're here. As always, I love hearing from listeners. Many of you have written in, so if you have questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to say hi, I invite you to reach out to me via email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Be sure to tell me where you're listening from and how you're listening to. Thy Strong Word is supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Now listen, I want you to go and check them out. Head over to lhfmissions.org. You'll see that they are doing great work for the kingdom. Today is Thursday, August 25th, and we have arrived at chapter 9 of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Yesterday in chapter 8, we heard St. Paul say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How true! There are sufferings in this life, sufferings often connected to our walk with Christ. But that waiting for believers is glory beyond measure is such good news. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Today, we turn the page to chapter 9. To help us discover what the Holy Spirit reveals to us through the Apostles' letter here, it is my pleasure to welcome the Rev. Christopher Amen, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota, as my guest this morning. Now, while our guests usually call into the show, Pastor Amon is sitting right here in front of me, live and in person in KFUO's Laverne, Minnesota Satellite Studio, also known as my office. Pastor Amon, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Yes, thanks for having me. And yes, good to be together in person for this. Well, what I'd like to do is give you the opportunity to talk to the listeners and tell them a little bit about what God is doing through you and through your congregation in Pipestone, Minnesota. Yeah, so Pipestone, uh, just about a half hour north of you here, where uh, for our listeners, uh, Pastor Boo and I are in the same circuit as well, and and so we uh, get to see each other uh, quite a bit and share in the ministry in the region here in Southwest Minnesota. It's a great blessing. That's why you're able to be here in my office, which is wonderful. Yeah, But in Pipestone, uh, so as we are nearing the end of summer here, and like many already have, we've you know, come completed uh, our vacation Bible school, had our closing program, and lots of great time of teaching not only our kids uh, the truths of God's Word and bringing the gospel, but like many churches, it's also a good time for outreach and and sharing that Word with those that we don't normally get to, but, you know, they want to come, and whether it's for the meals or for the fellowship or because all the other kids in town are doing it, we don't care. They come and hear about Jesus, and that's always good things happening. Well, what was your theme for this year for VBS? Uh, we used uh, Monumental Love, uh, which uh, went through the the narrative of Joseph 
uh, in the book of Genesis uh, and uh, dovetailing off of chapter 8, all of his sufferings and things he went through and how God was revealed and showed his love and grace and mercy through those things. Now, you know, I know that every pastor loves to have the children of the community in the church. He loves to have his own children from his church there learning more about Jesus. But pastors differ on their opinions on how much they like to get involved. Um, there's a lot of work to VBS. What kind of pastor are you? Do you like to get involved with VBS? I I am involved with VBS. I am Definitely most thankful for our many, many volunteers that put the work together so that I can show up, uh, pray, welcome the children, lead them in the lessons and holy scriptures and things like the crafts and games and other details that go into VBS. I'm very thankful for our volunteers who take care of those things. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like me. I just like being there available to the kids to answer their questions and pray with them. And yeah, so yeah, you get to roam around and just see all the great stuff that's going on. We just finished our VBS too. So I uh, definitely understand that feeling. It's nice for it to be over for sure, uh, but it's always great to put on. So before we begin our text today, I'd like to impose on you just a little bit. If you would begin with a prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you've written all holy scriptures for our learning. Grant that we continue to hear them, read them, mark word, and learn them, and take them to heart. Grant that in all things we see Christ for us, and we see your work in our lives daily, as well as your work preparing us to rejoice with you in your heavenly kingdom. May we continue to hold fast to your word and grace that you so graciously provide for us to the end. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. So as I said earlier, our text is going to be all of Romans chapter 9. But to get us started, I'd like to read some of these verses, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, starting with chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I think that's actually a good place to start it. Stop. It's only uh, five verses, but he says so much there. You know, so far, Paul, it seems like he's been kind of really laying it heavy on the Jews. Um, but he kind of makes up for it here a little bit. He gives us a little insight into why perhaps he's been so strong about it. Yeah, so he really is kind of laying heavy. He's going to put on the gas, then he lets off a little bit. But don't kid yourself here. There's a little more acceleration that is still to come here as well. But yes, he speaks these things and that I'm speaking the truth in Christ. 
So he, this is just simple facts. And sometimes we forget that with our faith, especially when it comes to the person of Jesus. We're not speaking our opinion on things of what we think or what we desire things to be. I'm just telling you the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm just letting you know the simple truths of these things and how I wish myself that you knew these things and weren't accursed and just go back and that this is a matter of, of history and, and present reality for us. I think it's interesting how you bring out the idea that first of all, he's, he is slowing down perhaps a little bit, but he's definitely not putting the brakes on it. Um, he is going to, I guess, double down on his concerns over the Jews not basically fulfilling what they have been called to do with the word of God, with all of these wonderful things they've been given, adoption, glory, covenants, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. When we as pastors or fellow Christians, like the listeners out there, are discussing God's truth, we're reaching out to those who need to hear the gospel. Whenever we want to engage someone over God's law and gospel, it's not that we have some sort of animus against them, but rather we have, just as the Paul, Paul says, great sorrow and unceasing anguish when we see others who are not either with Christ or living as Christ has called them to live. Yeah, and I think part of this too is we see all this passion that's going to come out and part of why it's so heavy. And we do this too. I'm sure many listeners, I don't know any pastor, Christian that doesn't have it. You got your own family member. You got your own friends. And so as Paul says, you know, there's this sorrow, there's this sadness of not them not knowing the gospel, not having it. And we see it in our churches, maybe those who've fallen away, uh, aren't as involved as much. And I think for Paul, that's kind of what this is. He's he's hurt by this because he knows you've had the, the gospel and pro- promise of God. You've had it from the beginning. And so it kind of pains him in a way too. And you see that passion and desire come out. You know, he's talking about kinsmen according to the flesh, which of course means the Jews, and he's talking about their mutual heritage. But what you brought up I think is really striking, and that is that we see in our own lives and in our parishioners' lives, and I'm sure in the listeners' lives, literal kinsmen. Perhaps it's children, moms, dads even. It could be brothers or sisters who have either fallen away from the faith or just Maybe never came to the faith to begin with. And yeah, so this is the kind of anguish that he's feeling. If you've ever felt bad that you can't, for instance, reach your sister who has walked away from the church, or rather your attempts to reach her perhaps haven't come to fruition, then you understand a little bit what Paul's talking about here, right? But then when he talks about the Israelites, he lays out the things that they had been given, the adoption glory, covenants, the giving of the law, worship, and the promises. Talk a little bit about those things. You know, they were given these things by God to do something with them, right? Yeah, so God gave them all of these things, these promises. And, you know, patriarchs or fathers and how God just, he just goes back and he really is bringing them back with this such simple language and yet... uh 
goes through a lot of history there. So he can go through and, you know, go through the promise of circumcision, which they hold so dearly of, well, what was the point of it? What was it pointing to? Or even the, you know, whether it's dietary laws or what are the ceremonies for? And it's not just that you do them, but that they have a significance and they point to something. And he's telling them, this is Jesus. This is the Christ. He's the one these things have been pointing to. And so you have them. Don't just let it sit there. Don't let it look pretty, you know, but actually utilize these tools, these gifts you have, uh, that they are for your life. He said way back in chapter two that a Jew is not one only outwardly, that there is this keeping of the law, this spiritual side, the idea that we you can be hearers of the law, but those who do the law are the ones who are justified. And so, yeah, you can be given all of these things. You can have access to all of these things, but if you don't put them into practice, then yeah, what good are they basically? Essentially, they had been given the word of God. But starting in verse 6, he posits the idea that, well, even though they've been given the word of God, it's not that the word of God has failed. Let's read those verses and dig in. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, quote, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So these verses right here, he begins with the idea that it's not though the word of God has failed. So if the Israelites, who had been given all of these promises and word of God essentially to put into practice being priests to the nations, and yet they've fallen so far astray to the point where the apostle's heart is hurting for them, does that mean that God's word doesn't have any efficacy? What does he mean by that? So I think he's sitting here and telling them, this word of God is still true. It's still valid. It still does exactly what it says. But as you mentioned earlier, you got to use it. You can't make up your own word. You can't make up your own law and say, well, God said this. I'm going to go off on my tangent and make it mean this and then practice my religion, my spirituality in my own way. And he really lays in here, and this is where he's starting to put the continue that he's putting his foot on the gas a little more. He goes, as he speaks, just because you descended from from Israel, just because you're children of Abraham, does not mean that you are one with God, that you yourself are faithful, that it's not just a matter of your inheritance, you know, of, of an earthly inheritance or your genealogy. 
it is a matter of faith. And he's gone through that so much previously in the book of Romans, emphasizing this work of, of faith, this gift of faith. And yet we try to change it so much. And and we have that struggle, I think, at times too, uh, of trying to lay on an inheritance or a past. But it's not just that. He goes, that's what he's getting at. It is in the person and faith of Jesus. And that never fails. That never changes. And so when God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. When God says you are his child, you are his child. It's interesting because you bring up Jesus, which is always a good thing to do on this show. And, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 says, don't think to yourselves, you know, we have Abraham as our father. I can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. That's obviously paraphrased. But that's what Paul's saying here, too. The Jews had been relying so much on their heritage, on having been given the law, even though they didn't really follow the law all the time. But I think as it applies to us today, how many, regardless of your denomination, but we'll pick on Lutherans since we're Lutheran, how many say, you know, oh, well, I'm saved because I'm a Lutheran. Did Luther die for our sins? Are we saved because we're Lutherans? Absolutely not. I think we're better off because we're Lutherans, because we have access to the clear gospel of Christ. But really, it is Christ that saves us, not our heritage. And I think that's what he's getting at here. Wouldn't you agree, Pastor? Yeah, absolutely. And I know, like my family, like so many others, there's a deep Lutheran heritage. You know, uh, I think at one point, I don't remember how many pastors between my wife's family and my pa- and my family we've had uh, several generations worth on both sides in our family, and not only pastors but teachers or other youth workers or musicians, and that could be easy to claim. Like, well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm one of God's children. <clears throat> and yet, look at all my family's done. Well, and it's. And even as a pastor, right, we have to ask our and point out, but what about for you? Are you a sinner? Did Jesus die for you? And go to these things. It can be so easy to point to other things. And that's part of what I love here, too, in this text that he's doing. He's not going in the way they expect as he sets this up. He's actually reminding them, too, with Abraham, you realize that this didn't go exactly as your law and your customs and your way would be because otherwise it would be the firstborn it would (laughs) and right away in one generation god says by the way i'm gonna do it this way with my grace with my word and he's gonna get to that later in the chapter too with some other examples and we see that in the genealogies of jesus and in the old testament sometimes god works in a little twist in a little different way than we would or it doesn't perfectly fit that mold, and yet it's still his will. It's still his grace coming through. Whenever his readers saw him starting to talk about Abraham and Isaac, I'm sure that brought to their mind, oh, okay, well, now he's going to make the argument. Yeah, he's he's been hard on us about appealing to our heritage for salvation, but now he's got it. Now he's bringing up Abraham, and yet, as you said, he flips the script on them. He explains that it's not through biological matters that one becomes a child of Abraham. In fact, he'll say it again in Hebrews 11. In Galatians 3, he says, 
if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it is the promise of God that brings people into the family of the chosen people. It is because of God's grace, not certainly not because of who we're born to. And so it's interesting that you mentioned that you're this legacy of so many Lutheran pastors. As I mentioned several times on the show, I didn't even grow up Lutheran, right? So uh, my dad's not a pastor. He is, however, an elder at his church. That's a recent development. But I became Lutheran before anybody else in my family. Uh, But the point is, none of those things, whether I appeal to the fact that I am a relatively new Lutheran, only having been Lutheran for, you know, 20 years, or whether you're a lifelong Lutheran with a heritage of pastors in your family, those things are not what God looks at. God is impartial. God looks at your faith. And so this is really important to our listeners out there who maybe are brand new to the faith. Maybe they just discovered uh, Christianity, perhaps even just through KFUO, and they're trying to navigate their way on what it means to be a Christian. And the good news for them is that they are just as chosen in Christ and heirs to the promise as those who have been lifelong Lutherans, or as St. Paul says, those who were Jews from birth. And so I think it's a, it's a great message for us to remember that we are saved, of course, by faith. And what great joy that is for us, too. And yeah, for any listeners, those out there new to the faith, even still maybe just getting into it just now, just starting. And for those who, like myself, have grown up in it the whole time, I think for Paul's audience too, you can have a renewed appreciation if you've had this whole time. This step back of, oh, that's right. Maybe I have lost my focus. Maybe I have let something get in the way. I need to step back. And if you're new to realize, you know, they don't always have it together either. That's what we confess all the time as we confess our sins each week, right? As that we don't have it all together and we are still new children, always coming back and starting back there as well. Being in the family of God, having faith is not about being perfect, but rather clinging more and more to Christ each day. And of course, receiving the gifts that he gives us and he gives us gifts, his grace in a very special way when we gather together, when he gives us his word, the sacraments, those things are the means through which God strengthens our faith and also, of course, the fellowship of believers that comes from that. So he says in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So in this section, God's sovereignty is brought to the forefront. We don't talk about God's sovereignty we talk about it quite a bit, but we don't talk about it perhaps as much as some other Christian traditions whose focus is very heavy on the sovereignty of God. How do we, as faithful Lutheran Christians, interpret this idea of election and sovereignty of God as it applies to our salvation? Certainly, God has made it clear through the scriptures that he elects us, but how is God's electing work done, and what does that mean for us today? 
So this selection work really is going to lay out the rest of the chapter uh, as well. And so really is a nice way of leading us into what's to come. And part of it is this reminder that we don't play a part in that, uh, that it is pure gift of God as we confess and learned, you know, uh, with our small catechism and the third article, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit has called me. And so that sovereignty, yeah, we we probably do not quite go there as much as Lutherans, perhaps to our detriment. Uh, we should speak of it more. And there is this reality, and the scriptures speak of God's power, his authority, his leading, and his directing so many things um, in our lives, even those that that we don't always realize or come to see. And we're going to see that throughout the chapter uh, of how God works and how God is using these things. Um, and that will be a key distinction, I think, to come of sometimes how God is directing and leading, but sometimes how God uses or utilizes things despite us for his uh, for his grace and for his will. The opposite of God's sovereignty often is seen as our sovereignty, and that is the mistake that many otherwise well-meaning Christians make. They have made a decision for Christ, they've committed their lives to Christ, or they've chosen to be a Christian after, for instance, I guess— exploring the other options? I'm not sure. But the reality is that God chooses us. How do we reconcile that with God's words that he desires all to be saved? If God has chosen and elected us before the foundation of the world, as the scriptures are clear, and has he elected those to damnation? Verse 13 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is some poignant and powerful language, and it's being spoken by God. How do we navigate that? Well, we will explore that and much more when we return with my guest, which is the Reverend Christopher Amen from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. I'll see you on the other side of the break. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back, friends, to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and I'm chatting with the Reverend Christopher Amen, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. Before the break, I talked about how God elects us before the foundation of the world. He predestines us, yet at the same time, I suggested that some people believe that God then must predestined people to hell. Now, that's not something we believe as Lutherans. So let's go into the next verses and see if we can shed some light on this. Just a few verses more, starting with 14. What shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Stopping there, well, let's explore that idea. It depends on God's sovereignty, for sure, but how do we reconcile that with the God who says he desires all to be saved? So I love this question that he goes, what shall we say then? And of course, you've already heard this not too long ago in chapter 6 with, shall we go on sinning? What shall we say then that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be. And so part of this too, he asks kind of the similar question. Well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And part of that is just starting with this acknowledgement that we are all in the same seat. This acknowledgement that we are all sinners, that none of us deserve this, and that this is whom God, what God has chosen to do in his mercy. And so many times I think we get caught up in who or why or what's God doing or why not me. And part of that too comes with this with this entitlement of, well, if they get something, I ought to get something. If that it must be fair for all. And yet what Paul is going to lay out here and go through both in the Old Testament and using Jesus's words itself and throughout the scriptures, it's not just that these things weren't proclaimed for all, but that there is something to whom God uses and gives this gift of faith. And yet there is a part of us too. It's not that double predestination, but it's this reality that Some have rejected a gift, and that's an important distinction, that you can reject a gift, that you can dismiss something or set it aside. Yeah, I think people naturally want to wrestle with this idea of, you know, if God is almighty and powerful, can't he just force everyone to believe? And that's not how he has chosen. So to even ask the question, is there injustice on God's part? The only thing that could follow is the may it never be or by no means because, of course, there is no such thing as injustice on God's part, not the least of which the reason is that God is perfect. God cannot do something that's unjust. So even if God does something that we, from our human perspective, might describe as unjust, doesn't make it unjust because God is all good. Yes, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so the focus of this text isn't so much to defend the fact God chooses us before the foundation of the world, while at the same time holding in his heart this desire that all people come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved, but rather what is our role in it? And so putting the onus on God, putting the authority on God, 
relieves us from this idea that we have to please God by doing these perfect works or that we have to appeal to our heritage as ethnic Jews, rather to appeal to the fact that we have received the promise. Now, of course, we know from elsewhere we are saved from hearing the gospel. That is a passive act. Paul is laying out the argument piece by piece by piece, and he is continuing to expand on this idea that God is powerful and sovereign. And of course, for these Jews too, you know, we're now, we started with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in this promise, and we see how it didn't fit. Esau was the first one out, and yet the promise uh, continues to go through Jacob. And the same here too. Now we're going into probably what is their second greatest <laughs> or greatest, depending on moment in history, and that is with Exodus and with Pharaoh. And so this reminder for them that God has shown his mercy and works through these things and that this is the purpose of all of these things is so that God's glory, God's grace will be revealed and shown. And so, you know, we can always like to pose these hypothetical questions, right? And could Pharaoh have just let them go the first time? Yeah, he probably could have. He could have seen the mighty work of God, which he himself asked for, proved to me that this God is God and God acquiesced and says, sure, here, I'll show you. And yet Pharaoh says, oh, well, thanks for doing that, but no thanks, I'm still not going to let him go. And so we have this temptation to say, well, could Pharaoh have done that? Well, sure, he could have, but he didn't. And so when we start to play back on, there is somewhat this reality, but he didn't. And so God still shows his glory and, and reveals it. When it says, for scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up for this purpose. God has a purpose in the things that he does and the things that he allows and the things that he does not do. There is a purpose. And so starting with verse 19 and let's go through 29, we see here that we have to remember our place in the creation whenever we decide to start questioning God's activities or purpose. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And verse 29, And Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. As we look to this text, he starts to lay out this idea that, yeah, we do not have a right to question God, although questioning what's going on is a natural part of who we are as humans. How does this all fit in with our faith today? I think a big part of this is what kinds of questions you might ask. You know, I uh, always point out to my parishioners, to my confirmands, especially when we get to things like prayer and the Lord's Prayer, or if we talk through, look through the Psalms, look through the Scriptures, they ask God all kinds of questions. It's not asking the question that's necessarily the problem. It's maybe what kind of question or being open to the answer. You know, oftentimes it's said, don't ask a question in which you're afraid of what the answer might be. Uh, if if you can't handle the answer, if it's not your predictive way, you may not want to ask it. Or similarly, you know, I don't ask my doctor uh, necessarily financial advice. I don't know if my doctor is one who is keen and financially sound and has good advice. I just don't ask him because I don't trust or know that he has that. Likewise, I don't ask my financial advisor questions on my health. I go to my doctor. And so part of that is you can ask questions, sure, but doing so in faith is also open and saying, God, I know you have the answer. I know this is it. And as you said, part of it's knowing my role and asking that, in that I'm asking as a child, ready and eager to receive and learn and listen simply as given. And yet some questions, sometimes we ask questions because we kind of lead it in or we have an expected result, an expected answer, and that's not really asking then in faith. Well, I do love how you point out the reality that, yes, we can ask questions of our God and ask questions of our faith. That's how we learn small catechism, for instance, is nothing but a list of questions and answers which put to our heart the tenets of our faith. But it says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I think of Job, of course, right? You know, who were, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? There's a difference between answering, seeking information, seeking after the wisdom and will of God, and of course, thinking you know better than God. Whenever my children talk back to me, I'll tell my daughter, Katie, I'll say, don't talk back. And she looks at me in the eye and she'll say, well, I have to talk back. That's how conversations work, dad. In itself is talking back, but she doesn't understand at 10 the difference between the literal use of the words to talk back in a conversation and to back talk, for instance, that is to answer in a way that's snippy or disrespectful to your parents. And I think you're absolutely right. That's where we're getting the difference here. It's not, the problem isn't that we're questioning God in terms of seeking his will. It's that we're questioning God as if we know better. Will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Does the potter have no right over the clay? Of course, God at the end of the day 
is in control. He is sovereign, which is the point of this passage, and we submit to his will. But it has been revealed that his will is one of love for his people. He has prepared for destruction no one because he has sent the means by which we are saved, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. But there are those, as you said earlier, that will reject this free gift of faith, and because of that, will end up in destruction, which is something that we as Christians, as Paul started this chapter, don't like, don't want for people. We want to avoid that. Our hearts hurt over those who continue to reject God's will for their lives. And part of this, too, then, as you said, with Job and with others, with our own children, even now with my own father and mother, to know my place in this relationship and what this is. You know, so I, as I was reading and preparing for this, too, I was, we just had our county fair uh, last week, and my kids participate in 4-H and make some projects and stuff. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, that doormat that my daughter made, she did a wonderful job on it. It can only be a mat. It, that is what it was created to be. Are there other uses for it? Sure, we could find other uses. But the birdhouse that my son made could never be a mat. It is what God has made and said it is. And in our world, in our culture, uh, not to delve too deeply into this too, there is this reminder of God has created us. God has made us. And so we can't, we can't change what God has made. We can't redefine to fit our own wills and our own way. And he even speaks here, too, of how he's had patience with them. He's waited. He's suffered alongside them. And he's not out to destroy them by any means. He could have done so and probably should have done so if he really were to execute justice as we deserve, he would have done so a long time ago. But he's been patient. He continues to show his mercy, not only then, though, to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And that is really where the Jews, and this is probably the source of Paul's perhaps angst and frustration and disappointment, is you've had this gift, this promise this wonderful thing from God. Not only have you rejected it, but you've also not allowed and given those who God also desired you to share it with. You've not done so. And so he's prepared all of this for us. He's given us all of these things. This is who you are. And really, this is just the call of Christians. Live as God's children. Receive his precious gifts. Share them. Use them. In chapter 3, he says, what advantage has the Jew? And the what follows is an explanation that there was an advantage, just as he said here, that they had the word of God, the promise, the patriarchs. But that advantage isn't that they are automatically secured in heaven, even over and against the Gentiles, but rather the advantage was God chose you to be his priests, and what did you do with that? So even here now, it's the same thing. 
his frustration, as you pointed out, comes from this idea that they had these advantages and yet did not make full use of them. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In that question is also this statement of God's mercy, this reality that God has called Jews, but he called them to also then go forth and call the Gentiles. And that's where this quote from Hosea comes from, right? Absolutely. And this quote from Hosea, I think, is just an absolute treasure. Uh, Part of it is to remind the people, as he's been doing, he's reminded them of their own history, of their own heritage. And part of this, too, and what I love him about bringing about Hosea is the history with Hosea and what's going on, too, and this reality of this has not been as clean or as faithful. This is not as good of a history as you might want to think about. And so as he goes about there and he's speaking to them, he goes, those who were not my people, I will call my people. This is a direct correlation with the Gentiles. And this, and if we go through, and I would encourage all listeners out there, you know, Take some time and go read the Old Testament book of Hosea and see what God is working and doing there. And so how all of this is of how God calls Hosea to go and be the husband of an unfaithful wife, of a prostitute, and to actually you know blesses them with children and the names of the children here too. Um, I find it's in, you know, the first one is scatters. What a name. Scatters. And then the second one, no compassion. And then the third one, not my people. <laughs> and so he's going through and he goes, he's telling them what the children of Israel will become in their unbelief and in their sin. Of You're going to get scattered. You're not going to have compassion and you're not even going to be my people. Not because I don't want you to. Not because this isn't for you but because by what you believe and how you live and what you show, you've rejected these things. And yet God's mercy and love and grace will continue. And he's going to give it to people. He's going to give it to you. He's going to give it to someone else. He's going to give it to both and all. He's going to continue. His word will continue. His word will always bear its fruit. He goes, I will call other people. I will bring them in. Earlier, he used that adoption inheritance language as well. And how great that is. If It's not just genealogy. It is act of faith, love, and trust in God above all things. In verses 27 through 29, he starts to give us insight into the fact even out of all the number of those who can claim to be the sons of Israel, that only a remnant will be saved. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And then he quotes Isaiah about them being like Sodom and Gomorrah if it hadn't been for the offspring that was left behind. 
the next verses, or rather I should say the last verses of our chapter, which we'll cover in the few minutes that remain of the program, deals with Israel's unbelief. And he asks another one of those what shall we say then questions, starting with verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. St. Paul going to the scriptures, which of course at the time were the Old Testament prophets and uh, the Torah. And so we see here that he's saying that there's a reality that you haven't considered, that righteousness is not attained by works, but rather by faith. The first readers of Romans, how would they have understood this? What does it mean for us today? So part of this, all throughout this chapter, as he does all throughout the book of Romans, as you mentioned, he goes back and simply rests in the word of God. I think this even ties us back to the very first words of this chapter of, I am speaking the truth in Christ. As all scriptures God breed and profitable for rebuke, reprove, instruction, and teaching. And so he just does what all Christians in our life and in our teaching, what we as pastors do so often, we are just bringing forth scriptural truths over and over again. Isaiah here, with this remnant language, speaks of this small amount. And this really, I think, goes, kind of hits some American sensitivities, I think. Um, you know, so... Middle school, high school, I grew up in Texas there, uh, and especially in those in middle school and high school there. It was too hot, but and culturally, you know, everything's bigger and better. And that's not just a Texas thing, although certainly amplified. It really is an American thing for a lot of us. And, and of course, we let this infect our churches too. And, of course, we want more Christians. We want more people in our church, we rejoice with that, and we ought to rejoice with that. We ought to desire that. But sometimes it's just a remnant, a small little piece here as well. My wife uh, is a quite an avid quilter and sewer, and so I've uh, come accustomed to, if I happen to be at the store, to look at some remnants and see these smaller pieces. But, you know, it's amazing what, can be done. Or perhaps, you know, our church's quilters group and maybe many churches have that kind of group to see all of those mission quilts and all of those things, these beautiful things that get done with mostly remnants. And what a great reminder of, of what that is, of how God is going to use that. But the Gentiles, they weren't pursuing it. They were not seeking this. They weren't, you know, this wasn't what they thought they were doing. They were just simply receiving God's word, letting it pour over them like a rain shower and just absorbing it. And so while they were pursuing it by the law, 
Well, if you want to pursue it by the law, guess what? You didn't fulfill the law. <laughs> There's only a remnant that receives it. And so many of these Jews have just gone by way of the law. And that wasn't new in Paul's day. That was going on with Jesus. We see that that was going on throughout the Old Testament. So many people struggle with the shrinking size of churches today. And this shrinking is happening regardless of your denomination, regardless of where your church is located. Obviously, there are some that may be ebbing and flowing, but overall, those who identify as Christians are in reducing numbers. This should not be surprising to us because just as Paul says here and the scriptures say elsewhere, there is a remnant of believers. And so I think it's amazing your illustration about using the remnants to create a not only beautiful but useful quilt. That's certainly an illustration that I'm going to use in the future. I also like to compare the remnant to uh, making a sauce. If you know anything about cooking, when you reduce a sauce, its volume shrinks as the water boils out, but what's left behind is so much more potent and powerful. That is how I also see the church working. While we might be losing some people, which is never something that the church likes, again, not because we're concerned about numbers, but because we're concerned about eternal salvation for these people, at the same time, what ends up being left behind are often the strongest members, those of strong faith, those who are ready to continue to proclaim Christ even into the next generation. Well, we just have two minutes left in our program, and I was wondering if you'd take those two minutes to share a good news of gospel for the people who are listening. How can their lives be enriched by not only this passage in the knowledge of God electing them to salvation through Christ, but also uh, how can they share that good news with others? So simply, rest in the truth of God's word, as Paul says. Just speak the truth in love. You know, it's not based on works. So oftentimes we can point to ourselves, point to our works, and I think that's our temptation. And we can stumble over them. But these very last words of chapter 9, very beautiful, give us the essence of the gospel. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so as ones who live by faith, there's so much times we can ask, am I one who's saved? Am I one whom God has elected? Well, by faith in Christ, pursuing by faith, you have the righteousness in him, and we have God's word and certain promise that you will not be put to shame, that we can pray along, as it says in the Psalms. Psalm 25 reminds us, that God will not put us to shame. And so for us, pursue righteousness, knowing that God in Christ has given this to you and share it for his glory, simply with the truths and words of God. Thank you so much to my guest this morning, the Reverend Christopher Amen, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. Dear saints loved by God, thank you for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. As our guest said, rest in the truth of God's word. Brothers and sisters, I hope you know that God has elected you to salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and so take courage. Remember, if you'd like to reach out to me, email me directly at pastorboo at gmail.com. 
So until we meet again, God's peace and blessings to you.